Hospo for me since we were young is eating, drinking and feeding people. You know, like I love to go out and eat as much as I love to feed people and provide hospitality for them. My parents are the same. Um, my brother's the same and a lot of close people in the industry are the same. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are some destined for a life in hospitality. Growing up with a strong connection to food, in families with careers immersed in the world of hospitality, the skills, nuances, know-how transferred over generations to carve new paths for the industry. What impact does a childhood in a hospitality family have on those as they forge their own careers? Taylor Cullen is the head chef of Chiswick in Wallara, Sydney. Taylor, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Good. It's great to have you on the show. You grew up in a, a family with a hospitality business. Did, did that take a did that make a big impact on your decision to be in the industry? Yeah. Well, um, I started in the kitchen at the age of nine, washing dishes. My old man had a restaurant, and uh, mum ran the front of house. So, bit of child labour there, but. Um, yeah, it was amazing. We sort of just like did a couple of hours on the weekends and I didn't really realize what impact it was having until I got a little bit older, um, about 14, 15, and I was sort of one of my only friends with money, um, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. So I realized um, the value of money and learned that at a really, really young age. And by the time I was 13, 14, 15, I had started working on like the prep section and then sort of, you know, into larder and stuff like that. And I just fell in love with food. It was amazing. Well, take us back to that time. Do you have any stories of, of that time for you? Yeah. Um, first time I ever saw my dad get super angry. <laughs> he, um, he was a pretty, it's funny in the kitchens, you can have the calmest, most beautiful people outside of the kitchens and they get, then they get behind a docket machine and just um, flip a switch and pressure takes hold and people get pretty grumpy, you know? So that was um, sort of highlighted something that I didn't want to become, even though my dad was an amazing chef. I um, am very calm nature like my mum. And so, yeah, so that was a big part of me growing up and sort of finding my feet in the kitchen and doing it with um, being as calm as possible which is really nice. Um, if I'm grumpy, I sort of go quiet now compared to lose it, which is interesting. <laughs> um, and then when I was like 14, 15, high school was kind of average. I didn't really like school. Um, I was really good at sport, but just didn't fit in, sort of going through puberty and stuff, had a bit of depression and um, found myself wanting to work in the kitchen a lot more because food is very expressive by nature and the pressure and heat of the kitchen really took my mind away from everything that was going on in my personal life and just was really nice to be in the kitchen. So um, by the time I hit 16, I went to two weeks of high school came home on a Thursday, enrolled myself in catering college, told my dad I was never going back and um, that he had to drop me off at catering college on the Monday. And I guess he just saw it in my eyes that I was never going to go back to school and didn't argue and said, cool, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. Tell us a bit about that restaurant that you you grew up in. Is it similar to the sort of thing that you do with food or far removed? Um, A little bit different. It was a really beautiful restaurant. We had about 70 seats. Um... Just simple New Zealand cuisine. It wasn't fine dining. There was no white tablecloths, but it was voted one of the better restaurants um, in the city that we grew up in, Hamilton. 
throughout the whole years they had it. They had it for 19 years or something. Um, and it was always in the top three or four, which is amazing. And we had a few really good chefs come through the door. So dad became sort of executive chef and took time out of the kitchen and became more of a restaurateur. And, um, yeah, we had a couple of mission star chefs come through and people with a really good attitude, people with um, really close connections to New Zealand and the land and stuff. And we just put out really solid, tasty food. It was nice. You mentioned uh, you enrolled in culinary school. What was it like on your first step to a commercial kitchen that wasn't the family restaurant? Was it a big change? So I didn't really, through the whole of culinary school, I stayed at the family restaurant. Um, and then once I left, uh, one of the old head chefs from our family restaurant, Jane Meebin, was the head chef at Longitude 131 in Australia. And so I was 18. She sort of just said, why don't you come over and do a year in the desert and see what you like, see if you like it. So, um, yeah, straight over to Australia. So to answer your question, yeah, it was super different. <laughs> Having never left home and stuff and then, yeah, going to Australia. Tell us about that time. How different was it? Yeah, so Northern Territory is rock. Um, for a start, it's 45 degrees and never gets above 30 in where I was in New Zealand. So that was a shock. Um, but it opened the door to Australian produce, especially with the big indigenous communities out there and stuff. There was a lot of bush tomato. There was a lot of natives, um, a lot of creepy crawlies and snakes and spiders. And um, the food we served was really nice. It was all Australian-based and obviously – all these amazing people coming from um, all over the world. Like I had, we had Emma Thompson come and stay and she ate staff meal in the kitchen with me three days in a row when I was on a breakfast shift, which was pretty amazing and just was super down to earth. And there was a lot of experiences like that for a fresh 18 year old. Um, finding his feet was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And just the whole venue and property is amazing. That sparked my, my love for luxury lodges, which upon returning home, um, from longitude after a year, because I do believe a year in the desert is enough. Um, <laughs> I got a job at a at a one of New Zealand's most famous and best luxury lodges called Blanket Bay, um, which is in Glenorchy, down in the South Island of New Zealand, just outside of Queenstown. And that is just an absolute magnificent property. Nice big kitchen. Um, you're only feeding 32 people with a eight course sort of degustation menu. Um, and that was my first real introduction into fine dining food, um, which is sort of where my heart lies. Um, and under the chef there, Corey Hume, I was there for about two years. I learned one of the most important things that I've taken through my career, which was we had a lot of the world's best cookbooks um, and all that sort of stuff because in this restaurant, the menu changed every day because obviously guests are staying for like three or four days. But the guest also wouldn't see the same ingredient twice during this day. So if they had a tomato one day, they wouldn't have a tomato on their menu for the rest of this day. So we had to get pretty um, intuitive with food and, you know, change things up a lot and simplify things or make things a little bit more technical. And it was amazing. So we sort of were rolling through these cookbooks and obviously you can't copy a dish from somebody that's already done it because that's just not kosher um so he sort of said everything in context you can see a dish that you love but you have different produce and so you can take a cooking technique from that dish and apply it to something that you're cooking or you can you know take one component of that recipe with their 
with their produce and transfer it to something that's going to go in your dish and use that. Um, and that just taught me how to study cooking basically. So now I can pick up any cookbook and yeah, really change recipes and look at things and get inspiration from everything else and apply it to what I'm doing, which has been a staple through my career. One of the hallmarks of your career is, is a lot of traveling and immersing yourself in different uh, cultures and different ingredients. You um, jetted off to Europe. Um, what sort of impact did that trip have on you? Yeah, so I was 22. My little brother was 18, um, who is also in hospital, so we just bred a hospital family. Um, we both went over to the UK with absolutely no plan whatsoever. Um, went to Glastonbury on the first day that we arrived, <laughs> which was pretty pretty special and opened our eyes to a world that we had never known. Um, made a whole lot of friends. And then we bought a van, went to France, um, and we just traveled down the West Coast of France, Spain, and Portugal. Um, not being able to speak any languages apart from English because, I don't know, they just didn't really push that at school, which I kick myself for now. Um, and I'm actually trying to learn French, which is great, but really hard. Um, we just sort of like realized that food in itself is its own language and its own currency. Um, so we were traveling to all of these small towns and meeting beautiful people that would just invite you in for a meal because you're very, it's very hospitable over in Europe more so than this side of the world. Um, people just love their food. Like you see the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese and all of these people, they celebrate their culture through food. Um, so we met the most amazing people that we've ever met just traveling who would just open their doors and invite you for a Sunday lunch where they've picked up all of their produce from the markets, all of their cheeses, they're making their own breads, you know, and it just sort of like changed the way that we, we look at food and look at community. Um, and we both, I know, try and bring that into the restaurants that we're in. Um, Shay, my brother is the bar manager at North Bonnet Fish. And he, yeah, has the same philosophy as me where hospitality is in our blood and it's what we do. And traveling through the world just um, solidified the fact that that's what we love. Are there any uh, feasts or um, eating experiences that you had in Europe that really um, triggered this sort of direction that you've gone in? Yeah, so we were pretty broke <laughs> um, traveling. So we were actually camping on the beach a lot of the time and just – cooking, you know, lentils and stuff over in our one pot over a fire, but we'd be foraging for mushrooms and fennel and we'd be fishing. There was this experience that we had in Portugal where these guys um, row this big net out and then they pull it back in with a tractor. And there was, it was a spectacle. There was about 60 or 70 people on the beach and these people would bring in their net and take all of their big fish but then these 60 or 70 people would just jump in and take all the little fish that they weren't going to take, like all of the sardines and all of this. So we just like got involved, you know, and, and took some sardines and ate those. And it just, it's really amazing just how different it is. And then on the contrast to that, um, we ran a, a luxury chalet in the French Alps um, for an English couple. Um, which was pretty special. So we cooked for 12 people a night. Um, we'd work six days a week. We'd make them breakfast. We'd go snowboarding all day, and then we'd come back and cook them a, a really nice four-course meal. Um, but though the couple that owned that chalet took us to a three-star restaurant called Le Boit to say thank you. Um, it was the first fine dining experience we'd had in probably two years. 
and it just blew us away. There was a one component on this menu. It was the most amazing thing I've ever put in my mouth. It was, it was just ox tongue tart. It was just perfect. The flavor was amazing. And I haven't ever had anything that spectacular since, which is pretty crazy to me because it was such a simple little thing. Um, but the meal as a whole was surprising to me because everything was just too perfect and so refined that nothing apart from the tart stood out and made me go, oh my gosh, that was the best meal I've ever had in my life, which was um, quite bizarre because you would expect everything that's perfect to do that, but it also didn't make you go, wow. You just sort of understood that it was done and executed perfectly. That primal experience is that that you had in, in Europe and that sort of yearning to be in that fine dining area. How, how have you balanced those experiences that you've had to sort of land on something that speaks of you? Yeah. So it's sort of a cross between the two. I love fine dining and that's where my heart lies. But my favorite thing to do is to go fishing or catch kinner or shellfish or mussels and just cook them over a fire on the beach um, so that's what I do in my spare time. And then I love the elegance of refining these rustic and beautiful ingredients into a fine dining setting, which I think is, um, where the sort of the art comes in and the love for food and the passion and the fire really, um, breeds into what you put on the plate. So I definitely balance my time between taking produce off the land and cooking it in a rustic way, and then trying to transfer that into the kitchen that um, resonates with me from a primal perspective, but also people will happily come and sit at the table and eat and pay money for and enjoy themselves. You've been back in Australia for quite some time now and, and worked with some incredible chefs. What have been the real sort of key moments that have uh, sort of pushed you in the direction that you're, you're in? Yeah, so arrived after, after traveling the States and sort of working as a private chef for a year um, back to Australia because my little brother was here and I just wanted to be a bit closer to family um, and was here and sort of was looking around for a job and was looking through Bondi and stuff, which is where I live, and then got offered a trial at Polly, um, which I actually turned up to a week early <laughs> because I was pretty desperate for a job and I guess just didn't read the email properly. And they basically told me to go away and come back next week. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. And so I just Googled best restaurants near me, and it so happened that the bridge room, uh, which was owned by Sonny and Ross Lusted, was, you know, 800 meters away. And so I walked down there, and it was 11.58 in the morning, um, and walked through the front door, and they basically told me to get stuffed as well because it was lunchtime, <laughs> which was pretty funny. But I saw the restaurant and was just like, oh, my gosh, this place looks amazing. So I emailed Sonny and um, sent her my CV and then rang Sonny and was just like, you have to give me a job, please. You have to give me a job. And so they, um, they brought me in for a trial that Friday and I started on the Tuesday, the next Tuesday. Um, and that was my first proper like hard kitchen where they were putting out still, I still think is the best food that I've seen leave a kitchen that I've been working in. Um, Ross is amazing and such a talented guy and the team were just like, you know, you're just in the trenches every day working your ass off and just trying to execute this, this magic food. And we did, and it was amazing. Um, sadly the bridge room closed after I was there for six months. Um, 
which was a bit of a shame because it was an institution and people in Sydney and around Australia realized that it was one of the better restaurants around. Um, and they sent me to Benelong, which was mind-blowing as well. I'd never worked in a restaurant that did more than 70 seats, you know, and then all of a sudden you're executing two-hat food at 250 covers, um, 54 staff on the roster. You know, I had 10 staff under me and I was working main garnish with Rob Cockrell's standing there slinging out the this just this amazing food. Um, and that just blew my mind as well. However, it wasn't for me. Um, cooking, at the time at least, cooking that amount of food and being in service for nine hours on a Saturday was just like a lot. Um, and you, it was, while it was amazing, it's, it just didn't have my heart, you know, um, which is when Paperback approached me actually, which was another very, very special time in my life. Paperback, um, renowned vegan uh, restaurant in Sydney. Um, what was it like having that sort of focus as a chef to really zero in and have no, um, no animal protein at all? Yeah, so I'm not vegan myself. Um, where I lie was food, especially now, and it's growing even more this way, is that I eat sustainably. Um, Paperback was the second time in my life where I really had to change the way I thought about food and how I cooked with food. Previously, it was I worked in a health retreat that had um, six guests come stay every night and we weren't allowed to use any sugars or bad fats or anything. So I had to rethink the way we put food on the plate there. But Paperback was a whole nother level. Um, coming from restaurants and always eating fish and proteins and butter and all this sort of stuff and then having to rethink the way you did it. And at the beginning, I started to try and treat vegetables like protein, which I think a lot of people do, um, especially now that it's growing in the industry to have vegetarian food. But I quickly realized that that is not the way to go about it and that vegetables are just so different to meats and fish that while you can transfer some cooking techniques to make them taste the same or have a similar texture, it doesn't work that well. And you really have to relearn, rethink and reuse how to just do everything, um, which was so special. It's the, yeah, it um, sort of made the way that I think about food change dramatically um, for the first time ever. In saying that, Paperback was a difficult time um, it was my first head chef role. I gained a bit of an ego um, and didn't really focus on the team that I had. It was sort of all me and I didn't bring in their ideas. And um, that's so important. And I, that role at Paperback sort of made me realize how I had mucked up in that. And it could have been so much more special than it was. However, I sort of took it upon myself to do everything and micromanage everything. And that's not the way to manage a kitchen. Um, and yeah, I really learned that the hard way. But in learning that the hard way now, I'm so team focused and, you know, everything's about making sure that people are happy and that they're, people will perform better when they're having a good time and they feel like they're expressing themselves also. And I really try and channel that. I just want to go back to Ross Lusted. You, Sonny and Ross created the Bridge Room, which was uh, the impact on the dining scene was incredible in Australia. Um, what was it about being in that kitchen and the food that, that affected you so greatly? Um, just Ross's 
travels through Asia and stuff, like he does have a big Asian influence on his food, or he did at the Bridge Room, not so much at Woodcut. Um, but at the Bridge Room, it was Asian heavy. But he had taken these traditional cooking techniques that he had learnt from overseas and really refined them in a fine dining way. Um, he had the grill set up in the middle of there, which burned at 700 degrees. And if you're on that grill section, you were going down every night, <laughs> uh, which is where I was. It was such a hard section to work and you've got five proteins going on and you're smashing out um, so many, so many covers. And I thought that I could cook on fire until I went to the bridge room. And then I really learned to cook over fire, over coal. Um, it was, yeah, it was just the way the kitchen was set up. It was so small and you had nine chefs in there. And so everybody's smashing into each other and everybody's yelling. And it's, you know, it was such a hard environment to work. But the food that came out of that kitchen, like I said earlier, was the best food that I have personally sent out of a kitchen. Um, and everybody recognized that and knew that, which is why the hard days, even though they were so hard, people were grateful to work there. Um, and I think that really speaks to Ross Lusted because he is a very, very talented chef and he's probably my favorite chef that I've worked for, which is why I went to Woodcut um, for six months when I came back from back from Europe and, and America. Um, yeah, I just wanted to revisit the family and go see Sonny and Ross. And then I ran the seafood bar at Woodcut for the last six months before Chiswick. What was the... Um, what sort of ingredient or dish was there at the bridge room that really harnessed sort of that, that relearning of cooking over fire for you? Um, so we had the main thing that blew my mind was you can burn things without burning them. And that's what Ross really portrayed in his cuisine. Like we had a burnt apple puree, a burnt pear puree. There was burnt celeriac on the menu. Um, and we had these duck breasts that we would sous vide with a little bit of sweet soy sauce. And then we would just cook them over the ash for about 20 minutes, consistently pricking the, um, the fat with a little needle so that it rendered down the skin perfectly. But the skin would go black, but would remain moist. And it was the best duck I've ever had still to this day. And we used that theory through a lot of things, whether it was cooking your Wagyu straight over the hottest fire possibly so that it could just go completely charred on the outside and then leave it to rest in the perfect spot so that by the time you came to serve it, it was perfect medium rare or however they wanted it cooked compared to cooking over ash compared to, you know, there was so many different techniques used in one little cooking hearth and that just basically taught me how to cook. You said Ross's, Ross's travels really affected the way that he cooks and your travels also has helped define you. Well, what's it been like for you in this time with the lack of travel and, and forging a career as a, as a chef? Yeah, so when I left Paperbark, I took the role as head chef at Bondi Harvest and my role was to travel between Italy and the States to visit our restaurants and cafes and just make sure that everybody was doing the right thing, train staff. Um, we got six days from opening a restaurant in Milan and COVID hit and we had to come home <laughs> for that first Sydney lockdown, which was absolute chaos. I think we got the second to last flight out and then it was like, boom, we're back in Australia. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then halfway through that first lockdown, I shipped off to LA to just make sure that we were keeping the cafes afloat. Like it's obviously really, really hard times for restaurants. And so I got in there and, and put in the work. But that really made me realize that I'm sort of, I've traveled a lot and I haven't had a base for a long time. 
And, you know, my brother and I have an apartment together, but I was consistently leaving to travel the world and we have a dog and my parents still live in New Zealand. And I sort of was ready to put my feet down in one place and, and settle for a bit. So coming back and COVID was actually a bit of a godsend um, for me. I've managed to just move myself fully into an apartment nicely and just, you know, chill and work and focus on surfing and yoga in my career. And um, yeah, it's been really lovely. <laughs> What sort of impact has that had on your approach to cooking? Has your, has your cooking changed as a result? Um, I think that your cooking changes, especially to a venue that has a narrative, like where I am right now, Cheswick, it has a very direct narrative. And so I've had to slot myself into that, which is a little bit more rustic than the bridge room and the Benelongs and the paper bark and stuff like that. But like an amazing experience to cook that way. And I love cooking like that because that's how I cook at home. So it's almost like I'm swipping, switching things around and I'm cooking more elegant things at home now and cooking slightly more rustic at work, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. So I love the way that food changes, especially as you grow older. I'm definitely refining flavors and focusing more on um, stronger techniques through the prep stages and more simple plating, if that makes sense. So my dishes now are definitely prep heavy, but they look like there's only three components on the plate, um, which makes the flavor intensify and people just go, wow, because they're not expecting that much. And then it just explodes with flavor and texture, which are like the two most important things in cooking, I believe. Matt Moran's Chiswick has been around for, for a while and won um, many accolades. You mentioned the narrative that you need to cook to. What's, what sort of relationship do you have with him and, and the menu creation? Yeah, so obviously uh, Matt's been around the block and he's amazing. Um, having Aria and North Bonai Fish and Chiswick and all of these beautiful restaurants, you know, and all the film stuff that he does. He's, he's a very, very talented human being. And it's amazing slotting into the Chiswick family and working with Matt because of the garden. I'm sure it's the most expensive garden in the world being in Wallara. <laughs> um, but it's so special that we have something like that because there's not many Sydney restaurants can say, especially inner city restaurants can say that they have a garden that they utilize on a daily basis to fill food. Um, and then as far as the menu and the narrative goes, I've pretty much got full reign as long as I keep the – keep the staples on that people love so much, like the Matt Moran lamb. Um, there's a barra masalada that's been on for the last eight years or something, and there's some staple dishes that personally I wouldn't change anyway because they're amazing. But they did sort of hire me, and in the brief was we want to elevate Chiswick, shed a bit of a new light and freshen it up, um, which is why they brought me in. They like the idea of there being more plant-based things on the menu. And so that's exactly what I've done. We've gone – almost 60% plant-based on the menu, which is amazing. And I'm hoping to push that even further next menu. Um, yeah, and it's people are responding really well. They're loving it, um, which is great because that's definitely the more sustainable way to cook. Um, and that's really where my heart lies now is trying to make things as sustainable as possible. You mentioned at Paperbark was a relearning of the way to cook vegetables for you. How is that translating on this menu? Is there any sort of uh, vegetable dishes that you can tell us about that sort of exemplify this path you've taken? Yeah, so it's definitely um, a lot easier to put vegetable things on the menu now that I've worked at Paperbark. Um, I really 
that really taught me so much. I really appreciate my time there, even though I feel like I didn't do the job that I could have done um, because of the way that I learned to think and cook with vegetables. So, um, yeah, we have a roasted peppers dish on the menu, which obviously sounds pretty simple. It's just roasted peppers. But um, we roast the peppers and then we reduce the liquid that comes out of them when, we're, when they're roast and we marinate the peppers back with the liquid. And then we're taking lemons from the garden, which are beautiful Maya lemons. We're quartering them and salting them for a week and then we're juicing the whole lemon. So you get this really bitter, salty, sort of sweet lemon juice, which we're marinating with the peppers. There's heaps of olive oil on there. And then it's like putting on um, some bush tomato. You know, natives are really important and all the natives in Australia have these really intense flavors. So it's just like peppers marinated in their own juices with salted lemon juice, bush tomato, salt, pepper, and then a little bit of oregano. Um, sounds really simple, kind of prep heavy, but it's sweet, it's sour, it's salty, it's intense chargrill flavor. It's um, that really unique bush tomato flavor, which carries it over into the meal into like another dimension as well. Um, yeah. And the, just the way that I'm thinking about food now goes along those lines of what processes can we do to make the food as special as possible while keeping it as simple as possible and keeping the integrity of the ingredient that you're using. What's the response been like? I know you've only been open a little while since the lockdown and the, these, uh, the ease of restrictions. Um, what's the response been like to this new direction? Yeah. So the response from the public is, is great. That's not, really what has sold it for me the response from the kitchen team and the front of house team has been amazing you can just see they're all bubbly and super excited to sell the dishes and to create the dishes and they're all coming up with their own ideas and coming to me with like oh what if we do this for the next menu and everybody seems really inspired um which for me is is what i want to do is help these help my team get inspiration and they can help me with inspiration and we can just put out the best food that we possibly can and so, yeah, that response from the Chiswick team has been absolutely amazing. How do you work on those collaborations? At Paperbark, you tried to set out on your own mission, but here at Chiswick, it's all about the brigade. How do you collaborate and get the best out of them? Yeah, so um, that brings me to a good point that I wanted to talk about, actually, which was kitchens have been notoriously known for yelling and screaming and, you know, being high-intensity environments to work in. And I'm sort of in a space right now where I definitely don't do that. However, do you think that we breed the same quality of chef without doing that? I'm not sure, but I'm really trying to to work on being able to do that so that we don't have to, in the industry, expect to be abused and yelled at and um, have things thrown at you and all of this sort of stuff. So I'm really focusing on working hard with the team complimenting them when it's when it's necessary and them doing the same things and building the biggest teamwork possible which then makes the team more comfortable if they have an idea to express it um which i think is really important because you know i have 17 chefs imagine if they all had one amazing idea and i could put that on the menu and then everybody feels like they've been a part of it that's great um, so yeah, so especially being the new head chef, I'm just really working on becoming everybody's friend, but still being stern enough that they want to work well for me and do their jobs, um, as best as they can without slacking off, which at the moment has been working really well. 
and it's super exciting going down this new route. Have, have you seen positives from this approach already? Yeah, I have. Um, but obviously it's hard to tell in the long run how talented or how good these chefs will become because I haven't done it yet. Um, but at the moment, everybody seems to – they're working really hard and everybody is, you know, putting the food up the way I want to and smiling while they do it. And um, when we get busy, everybody puts their head down and puts the work in. So I do feel like it's working, which is amazing um, and very exciting. You grew up in a hospitality family and traveled the world and now you're in one of Sydney's best restaurants. What, what is it that you love about what you do? Um, hospo for me since we were young is eating, drinking and feeding people. You know, like I love to go out and eat as much as I love to feed people and provide hospitality for them. My parents are the same. Um, my brother's the same and a lot of close people in the industry are the same. And then you find that you're slotting into this really special community. Um, you know, we go out to restaurants of people that we know and they look after us and vice versa. And it's just this really, really beautiful space in life that I'm in at the moment where, yeah, you're just building community through hospitality. That's great. The last year and a half has been so challenging for many, but it's allowed you to find uh, your roots and, and bed down and, um, start sort of afresh with your career what what are you hoping for from the next year and a half yeah so you're exactly right it has let me bed down um i'm gonna be at chiswick for the next the next two years which i'm really excited about and then i'm gonna shoot back to new zealand after that and we're working on opening a completely self-sustainable farm down in arthur's pass um in the South Island. Uh, so it's going to be a luxury lodge. My parents are managing the build and will be general managers of the property. And I'm going to take over the, the kitchens. Yeah, which is, you know, a chef's dream come true. And I'm super lucky that this is coming my way. We're going to build greenhouses. We're going to grow our own animals and all of our own produce and sort of be as sustainable as possible and then still serve the most beautiful food to, to people that are coming into the restaurants. Um, the whole area, you, we will be able to source produce for about 100 kilometers because it's an hour away from the beach. So whether it's lobster, seafood, all the way to your meat and then all of your vegetables and stuff. So I'm at Chiswick at the moment, which is an amazing venue, and I'm working towards sort of getting off the grid a little bit and just running a completely self-sustainable farm. Well, that sounds incredible. And Taylor, it's been an absolute honor to have you on Deep in the Weeds today. And it sounds like we do need to catch up with you again sometime down the track soon. So please keep in touch and, uh, and we'll do that. Yeah, nice one. I would love that. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.